Okay, so we're going to be, we're going to start in Psalms 110, and if you're not familiar, the series that we're doing is called Songs of Hope, and it's using the Psalms, uh, which many of them were actually sung within the temple courts at different times throughout uh, the Israelites' history uh, as songs of hope, and some even songs of lament, but many of them were messianic prophecies pointing to Jesus. So we're using the Old Testament poetry and song in the Psalms to point us to the New Testament uh, that culminates in Jesus. And so we'll share a little bit more about that context because it naturally comes up in this teaching. But we're just looking at one little verse in Psalms 110, and it's verse four. And then I'm gonna give you a little context around the whole Psalm. But first, let's read verse four. It says this, the, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Anybody named Melchizedek today? Uh, the name's not taken if anybody wants to name their child that. Uh, so this psalm in general, Psalms 110 it was looked at as a a royal, in a sense, a royal song that was sung during many different rituals. Sometimes it was like a New Year's ritual that would be sung, or sometimes it would be like a pre-battle ritual. But this was more prominently used at the coronation of a king. In fact, they think this psalm surrounded the kingship of David. But within this psalm are two oracles. When I say oracles, think prophecies, things that are pointing to the future, two prophecies. One of them is in verse one, which we didn't read today, and it talks about kingship, and it's pointing to the future regarding Jesus Christ, our, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, this Psalms 110 verse one is actually referred to in the New Testament regarding Christ more than any other psalm. But here's what's fascinating. As we move to the second oracle, the second prophecy, which is in verse four, it talks about the priesthood of Jesus. And we'll explain what that means as we go through the message today. But the New Testament only refers to this reality once in the book of Hebrews. And so it's fascinating when you talk about the kingship of Jesus, we have all this connection, but the priesthood of Jesus, when we talk about Jesus as our high priest, that is captured in the book of Hebrews, which is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. And so um, we're gonna now turn, and we're gonna get to the character of Melchizedek in a little bit. I know some of you are so excited for that. Uh, But before we do that, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. And this is a chunk of scripture that we're gonna read together today. And we're gonna start in chapter four, Verse 14, we're gonna go to verse 10 in chapter five. So the Hebrew, Hebrews is a book written to Jewish people and it's in the New Testament. Um, so this is uh, during, the New Testament is during and after the, the life of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, the Old Testament is before Jesus. And so let's read this together and then we'll dig into all the context around it. <clears throat> it says this, therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Chapter five. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. To offer gifts of sacrifice for sins, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of people. No one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he is called by God just as Aaron was. And in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, and today I become your father. And he says in another place, and here it is, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus, life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could, who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. <sighs> That's a lot, isn't it? So we're gonna jump into this, and um, as we do, I wanna point out that the book of Hebrews, this really a letter in the New Testament, we don't, we're not sure who the author is, it is this portion of scripture, though, is the central emphasis in this book. Even though we're not studying the whole book of Hebrews yet, maybe someday we'll do that, this is the central emphasis. Now, I wanna mention up front that these ancient ideas here, and it talks about the ancient Jewish sacrificial system, it's far removed from modern day life. I don't know if you knew that, but it is. I have a dog who sometimes jumps on my bed at night. Sacrificing animals is very different from the life that we live in the modern age. And there are two clear points of application that are found in this passage, the passage about the priesthood of Jesus. And I'm gonna state them here and we'll come back to them. But the two clear points are this. We are not to live in shame. And secondly, we are never alone. We are not to live in shame, we are never alone. But what gives these truths, and, and if I say, so if I just say those two statements, we are not to live in shame, we are never alone. The average Christ follower would think at least, yes, amen. How many of you are like, amen to that? Yeah. But what gives these truths their substance is both the Old and New Testament. We have a little bit of a problem that we face in the modern age. I face it. It is that modern followers of Jesus many times separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. That is actually why, one of the reasons why we're doing this series. The little sheets of paper with the vision of this series that we're doing, Songs of Hope, was handed out. We have some up here if you want them or if you didn't get one at the information counter in the gathering place. But on there, it says that one of the things we wanna highlight in bridging the gap from Old and New Testament is that the 66 books of the Bible it's not 66 separate stories or two stories, an Old Testament story and a New Testament story. But it is one story pointing to and culminating in Jesus. And so this is an invitation for all of us to welcome the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, back into 
relationship with the New Testament because when we bring those stories together, these truths, the substance, the depth is revealed more than just a cliche amen. And so that's a little bit of the vision here around that. Now, this is why Hebrews is actually a really important book in the New Testament because it's the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. It forces us to grapple with the whole story because right away in this portion we talked about, it starts talking about sacrifices and high priests and all that kind of stuff. And if you're having that kind of conversation on the street in modern day America, people are like, what are you talking about? And even if they have a vague idea of what the Bible says about that, they don't know. Like, what does that actually mean, um, these types of words? And so it's an important book, and, and it, grap- it causes us to grapple with the whole story of the Bible, and it can feel intimidating. This can feel really intimidating. What comes to mind is a story when my kids were much younger. They were toddlers at one point. Now they're all teenagers. And... I sometimes do work around the house and there was one time where I decided I'm gonna work on the plumbing underneath the bathtub. And so I did. And long story short, I broke a pipe wide open and water was spraying into the upstairs and going down the stairs. And then I broke the shutoff valve trying to turn it off. <laughs> and... And, and, and then I begin running in a panic down to the basement. Of course, my little toddlers are around. Hey, Daddy, he's running. We'll run too. And, and so I go down to the basement and I turn off the water to the house. And then I go upstairs. I begin to clean all the water. And then I hear, so I, I think I may have shared this a few years ago. I hear one of my daughters say, Daddy, we fixed it. <laughs> and I go downstairs and all of our shoes are laid out, catching drips from the ceiling. <laughs> Shoes are just filling up with water. Now here's why, here's why I tell you that. Here's why I tell you that very cute little story. Because there's many things I'll work on in our house, but I am very intimidated to work on plumbing now, unless it's a drain. And so what I do is I invite somebody over who knows what they're doing, or I call a plumber. Because I'm intimidated. I don't want to enter into it myself. Some of you read scripture like that. Some of you approach the Bible that way. You're intimidated by it. And so you see your role in the community of faith is to let other people do the digging in the Bible. But that's not something that you feel invited into. And that couldn't be more, more from the truth. I mean, it can be further from the truth, actually. There are no secret decoder rings some of us are given to be able to read the Bible differently than you. And so I want to name this for us today. What we're reading can feel intimidating, but it is basic and foundational for our follow, followership to Jesus. This is basic Christianity when it comes to Jesus as our high priest. And I say that because it invites all of us into it, wherever we're at, young and old, Educated, uneducated, rich and poor, everyone. If you're a follower of Jesus who inhabits the presence of God, then you are invited into this. And listen, nobody masters the Bible. All of us are entering, in, it's less it entering into us and it's more us entering into, I say this all the time, into an ocean. We're discovering new things all the time. You're not gonna break it. Um, enter into it, study, grapple with this on your own. Go back, listen to sermons again, read the scriptures. In fact, 
within this, I'm gonna give a word on the ancient Jewish sacrificial system. We're gonna enter into this now. And I wanna do that because I wanna give context for what the author is talking about here. Your homework is this. If you wanna learn more about the ancient Jewish sacrificial system, if you want context to some of the things I'm saying, I'm gonna invite you into your favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. And... Here's your homework. Your homework is to read Leviticus chapter 8 through 10 and chapter 16, which is chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. And uh, that, I think in light of the sermon, will be very helpful for you, actually, to understand this. But let me start a word on the ancient Jewish sacrificial system. I want to point out a, a shocking truth to all of us today, and it's this. All of us live on a planet That's you, that's me, this represents everybody else in the world. You, me, me, you, everybody else in the world, you got it? So we live on a planet, and this planet, uh, evil exists on this planet, and in this universe, and specifically where, where we inhabit, planet Earth, it ruins things in at least two ways. There is the direct effects of evil that we inflict on each other. It's when, you know, we, we steal or we kill or we gossip. But there are all these direct effects of evil that mark us, injustices. We've all taken part in it. Um, we've all played a role in the injustices that's in this world, but there's also indirect aspects of evil that affect us as well. So there's direct aspects. It's the injustice we inflict on each other, the sins that we commit towards other human beings. But the indirect effects is this. Evil ruins the environment of relationship. Evil ruins the environment of relationship. It's like evil vandalizes the environment of relationship. So this whole thing that surrounds us relationally gets polluted in the trust that was supposed to exist in the atmosphere around us relationally, now is replaced with fear and insecurity and comparison and divisions and those sorts of things. So there are direct aspects of evil in this world, and it is the injustice we inflict, but the indirect aspects of evil is this whole atmosphere that begins to deteriorate. And it actually doesn't allow us to do what we were created to do, and that is to live in relationship, first with God, but also with each other. It breaks down the whole system of living that God has set up. Now, I wanna point this out, that God is good, right? It's not a trick question. <laughs> we just sang it, God is so good. Yeah, okay, that's why I'm not on the worship team, but Here's, here's the question then. Why doesn't God just get rid of evil? Why don't you just get rid of evil, God? Well, let's have an honest moment for a second. The same evil that exists in the world exists inside of us. So if our good God was to get rid of evil, let's just say God just gets rid of it. What else would God have to get rid of? Us. Oh, God doesn't want to get rid of us. We serve a really good God. God is so good that he is not only going to rid the world of evil, God is going to do it in a way 
that doesn't rid the world of us. And so how does this happen? This is where we're gonna rewind back to the Jewish sacrificial system, to animal sacrifice, which we do read about in scripture. I wanna point out a few things regarding this because it can be very confusing. It can be confusing to me. God puts this system in place for his covenant people. This wasn't a system that was created by man. This was actually a system created by God. And it sounds extreme, but there is a truth that God is trying to communicate. I want you to remember that this system that God put into place of animal sacrifice, again, it seems weird. I have tons of, we have tons of pets at our house. If you've ever sent your kids to our house and you don't have pets, they come home asking for pets. We're that house. That been, some of you laugh louder than others because your kids have been to our house. Um, that being said, though, it is, it is weird, but, but it is so powerful, this idea. It's a symbol. This is what I want you to hear. It's this animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. It, it is a symbol. It is a symbolic thing that God commanded of his people to reveal both the justice and the grace of God in at least three ways. The first way is this, that sin and evil, it does lead to death. It will kill you in the end. It, if sin have, has its way in our lives, it will murder us. It'll kill us, body, soul, and spirit. But secondly, forgiveness is costly. And thirdly, God wants to reveal his justice and grace in the idea that redemption is possible. Forgiveness is possible. And so there are two rituals I wanna invite you into um, from this. There are many rituals when it comes to the ancient Jewish system, but there's just two I wanna highlight today. Uh, one of them is called atonement. Everybody say atonement. Atonement, all right. This is what deals with the direct consequences of sin, the injustices that we create, that we inflict on each other in the world. And this is where animal sacrifices are putting an animal, a perfect a perfect animal, a spotless lamb or a bull to, to die within our place as human beings. That's called atonement. It's in Leviticus chapter 16. And the word atonement means to cover a debt. And then the second ritual that we see, again, this is symbolic, is to deal with the indirect consequences of evil and sin. Uh, the relational vandalism, the emotional vandalism that has taken part in a world that breaks our relationships down as human beings. The priests would symbolically, and this is gonna sound kind of crazy, but they would, they would wash away this vandalism by sprinkling some of the blood of the animal in different parts of the temple because in the ancient Jewish culture, the blood represents life. It represents life, and that is a ritual called purification. And the idea behind it is that the temple and the land would become a clean space, no more polluted by this relational and emotional vandalism that, that breaks us down as human beings, but the temple and the land would become a clean space where God and his people can dwell in shalom and in peace. The idea is that these symbols and stick with me here, I know this is a lot, but the idea is that these symbols would point God's people actually to his love and to his grace so that they would become a people of love and grace. Hear that again. These symbols 
of purification and atonement and other things would, that they would actually point people not to just all these duties that you need to perform, but actually that God is trying to provide a way for human beings that to understand that sin leads to death, forgiveness is costly, and redemption is possible. So, and, and in seeing the, the, the love and the grace of God, they would in, in turn become loving and gracious people. And then you have this prophet in the Old Testament that, that rises up, his name is Isaiah, and he calls this reality out. He says, your sacrifices, speaking on behalf of the Lord, your sacrifices have become meaningless because you are acting religious. You are following all the laws and all the rituals in Leviticus, but you are, you, are, you are creating injustice. You're ignoring the poor. You're ignoring the oppressed. You are not becoming the people of love and grace that God, that this whole system was meant to, to point you to, to take root in your heart, to grow fruit that actually looks like who God is in this world. And so... So Isaiah calls that out. And then there's this hope through the whole thing that there is a new king and priest who would come and conquer evil once and for all. And we know that this is Jesus. And let me highlight this truth and then we'll backtrack through this text to see how this works out. Um, the, Jewish, the, the, the Jewish sacrificial system, in a sense, is the shadow. And Jesus is the reality. It's just the shadow. If it, if it was like metaphorically on a street, it was a street sign just pointing to Jesus because this whole story culminates in Jesus and the climax of it is in Jesus. So as we enter into some of the verses in this Jewish, in this um, in Hebrews that we talked through, we're actually gonna work through them a little bit backwards. Uh, we're, gonna, we're not gonna start right at uh, verse 14 in chapter four, and here's why, because the very first line in verse 14 says this. The very first line says, we have a high priest. And because it says we have a high priest referring to Jesus, many of us are like, yay, what does that mean? Because this book, the reason why it can be sometimes so intimidating and complicated is because it assumes, it was written to an ancient Jewish people, and it assumes that you grew up as an ancient Jewish child who made a pilgrimage with your family to Jerusalem and who gave a sacrifice for the, for the priest, the high priest, to give on behalf of, of you. I mean, that, that and, and you know this. This stuff is baked into, you grew up in this system. It assumes all of that. And so we're gonna start at Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, because in Hebrews, the right at the beginning of of chapter five, we learn who, what a high priest is. And then we're gonna backtrack to um, chapter four for the application. So Hebrews five is uh, the high priest's job description, the first few verses. I'm not gonna read them again, but it is the job description of a high priest. So when I was a child, there are multiple things I wanted to be when I grew up, depending on the season of my life. At one point, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL, at one point, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Anybody else? Anybody want to be a Navy SEAL when you were a little kid? Anybody want to? And then I became a pastor. Yay! It's such a logical journey forward. Um, but if you were to ask a little Jewish child in that day, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they said, I want to be a high priest. <laughs> this is what a high priest is. 
It's sort of the job description laid out. And so right away we see in verse one, and this is me paraphrasing, um, it speaks of that every high priest is selected from among the people. So where do high priests come from? From among the people. They come from their peers. Now follow me. I know we're kind of nerding out on this for a little bit, but follow me here because it's so important. They are not beamed down from heaven. There's not some little like box that's delivered and a high priest jumps out as a divine being to do all of this work. The high priest comes from the people. Uh, They are going to represent humanity to God, so they need to be human beings. Hear this, Old Testament, the Old Testament priest Aaron um, who was the, the, the sort of the first high priest of Israel and all the successors in the priestly tribe of Levi, they were chosen from the Israelite people. The same, they came from the same environment, they came from the same pressures, they experienced the same human suffering and joy and trauma and hope. They, they experienced it all. And this is important because it, it makes sense that a priest uh, was would come from the, the people that they're serving because they are a mediator between God and man. They are an advocate, and a good advocate actually has experienced what the people they represent have gone through. A good advocate has walked, in a sense, in their shoes. And so they possess, the high priests are to possess a sense of understanding and a sense of empathy for God's people. Are you tracking with me, church family? Okay, most of you are, some of you are, some of you might not. Wake up! Um, all right, the next one is this, still in verse one. A high priest represent the people in matters related to God. So they represent, they represent the people in matters related to God. And so what does it mean for them to represent the people in matters related to God? Well, this is the third part of the job description. High priests offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. If you're taking notes, this verse won't be on the screen, but it's in Hebrews chapter nine, verse seven. It says, but only the high priest entered the inner room, meaning the holy of holies, where the, where the presence of God in a sense was. That, that was only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people who have committed in ignorance. Notice that the high priest themselves were sinners. Notice it here. When you think high priest, you, well, I mean, you probably think about the high, you know, the high priests who were a part of Jesus' Jesus's crucifixion and the, the, the beautiful um, outerwear they had and the sense of power and control and lording over other people, but that wasn't what God intended to create this religious system where some are higher than others. They weren't to be elevated above, but coming from among the people in humility. Do you hear that, church family? I wanna say that because though we don't have high priests anymore, and I'll say it again, we don't have high priests anymore other than Jesus. Though we don't, we do have people in all sorts of leadership roles within the church, and we, I know I say this stuff all the time, but we very naturally elevate people on pedestals. These roles of leadership within church, including the role that I'm in, they are servant roles. We are not to elevate people. We are tr- really not. This thing inside of us, and I think some of it's innocent, but I think some of it's actually residue of something that isn't healthy within us. This, this thing inside of us that's like, 
oh, that person's speaking, or oh, that worship band's playing, and we wanna lean towards it more. Like, I just think we need some freedom from that. I really do. There's a reason why we don't have a lot of bells and whistles, and we wanna keep things simple. We, we truly, I wanna encourage you to pray about that idea of pedestals that can still exist today. So the high priests were never meant to be elevated above, but coming from among the people in humility. And then in the next verse is the next part of the job description. It says, high priests deal gently with those who are ignorant about or those um, going astray. They deal gently. In other words, a a high priest in the Old Testament were to have a heart for the people. Now stick with me through this one because it's fascinating here. Uh, This inward empathy and outward compassion flows from the fact that they are two sinners in need of forgiveness. What sets a high priest free to be gentle is self-awareness. It's self-awareness of who they really are before God. So a priest in the Old Testament is to deal with sin because sin needs to be dealt with. But a high priest is to deal with it in a way, to deal with the actual sinful people gently because he is one of them. So that word deal gently, um, metromorphous, it's, it's this Greek word, and I, I think this is really interesting because the word, those two words, deal gently in the English are one word in the Greek, and it, it means between apathy and anger. So a high priest is to deal with people between apathy and anger because apathy and anger, no doubt, if they're humans, which they are, they came from the people, no doubt would be the temptation of a high priest because you are constantly dealing with the sin of people and giving sacrifices. So the apathy side is, I'm tired of it. Stop sinning. I don't want to give another sacrifice. I'm growing weary. It's been years, people. Really, Joe, you're still doing that? I mean, and, and there's, this, there's this sense of like, I'm done. I check out. Emotionally, I check out. That's gotta be a temptation for the high priest. Well, the other side of it's anger, which is not apathy. It's more leaning in aggressively. I'm sick of it, and there are ways that I can deal harshly with people, emotional harshness, verbal harshness, physical harshness, and a high priest is called to live in the middle, this place of gentleness that doesn't give in to apathy, that doesn't give in to the pull of anger and the pull of aggression. And so it's fascinating. He must strike a balance between the two, and it's kind of like what came to my mind, it's kind of like parenting. If you're too laxed and apathetic towards a child's rebellion, uh, they will be punished by life, potentially in the long run, right? Yet at the same time, if we're too harsh, we can break a child's spirit. And so what saves a priest and what saves a parent from apathy or harshness is self-awareness. There's a story that I've told before, and it's when my daughter Ava was just a little girl. I can, when I am tired, I can be overly harsh. Emotionally, with my family, or with my words, I can lean that way. I can be a little bit short and those sorts of things, and this day I was to my daughter, and I 
knew I needed to go back and apologize, and I did go back to apologize, and sweet little Ava is so little, she's just sitting there on the side of the bed, and she asked me that question, daddies need Jesus too? Daddies need Jesus too? And it's such a, oh man, this question just really set me free in so many ways, where it, where it helped me realize that the greatest gift I can give to my children isn't setting a bar of perfection or performance, but it's actually, maybe it's repentance. Instead of pointing them to me as Savior, I can point them to the fact that Daddy needs saving too, and my Savior is Jesus. And so this idea of self-awareness sets us free, sets the, it set the high priest free. And the, the next one is high priests were appointed by God. They were appointed by God. In other words, if a child grew up in ancient Israel and said, when I grow up, I want to be a high priest. Tough, kid. You got to be appointed by God. You can't just put a sign in front of your yard that says, on March 12th, which is my birthday, I am now high priest Dave. You can't do that. You got to be called by God, which is so fascinating. Aaron, the high priest, was appointed by God. And this would have been an aha moment. Here's a little bit of historical context. And you actually... Don't have to just look to biblical history. You can look to secular history that really lays this out in the time of Jesus. And it's so fascinating. When the book of Hebrews was written and when it was given out or in the time of Jesus, appointing high priests was very corrupted in that day. In fact, we know historically that the appointing of high priests um, began in 37 BC to 4 BC. Uh, it was Herod the Great of Rome that began appointing high priests of Israel. How messed up is that? And then that began an appointing of high priests throughout Roman governors that continued to AD 41. And it's, it's fascinating to me because Hebrews, by stating that a high priest is called by God, was also exposing the corruption and sin that was in that culture. Instead of representing the people in matters related to God, the high priests in New Testament days were representing the political establishment, and it was wrong. It was absolutely wrong. And I just wanna pause here just for a, a brief moment to say this. Anytime we set aside the Bible to define patterns of leadership in communities that God has formed, it will create chaos. It will create chaos. And one of the prayers in our culture, following the Bible or seeing the Bible as holy, as set apart, as not just another book, is not always a given, even in Christian circles nowadays. And one of the prayers is not to be a judgmental, like angry force towards that reality. But I'm praying, God, will you restore this vision of holiness around your word? So we can actually be set free from chaos of, of attaching the way of Jesus to the ways and systems of man. Can I hear an amen? amen. Thought there were some of you with me in that. And if you're not, it's great. Spend some time praying into that. Um, grapple with it. Now the text moves to Jesus, the truer and the better high priest. And this is Hebrews chapter five, verse five through 10. So it first casts a vision of what a high priest is. And now it, it's basically saying, does Jesus fit the job description? And so are you tired yet? Are you okay taking this journey with me? You doing good? I mean, if you're not, I'm gonna do it anyway, but come on, let's laugh a little bit. We're good. Um, 
the first one is this. Jesus, our high priest, was appointed by God the Father. In fact, we see in scripture in the order of Melchizedek from Psalms 110. Now, if you took high school debate class, anybody do that? There is, uh, yeah, saw some hands. There is some tactics that you put into place, and one of them is that you learn is anticipating the person you're debating objections. And in this case, the writer is not only claiming that Jesus was appointed by God the Father, but also anticipates the reader's one objection to Jesus being the high priest. And here is a, what seems like a legitimate objection. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. Jesus doesn't have the right bloodline to be a high priest. So I feel like I, I need to mention this because uh, Melchizedek is in here, and so I resisted going into it, but I think we need to go into it a little bit. The author of Hebrews reaches back further than Aaron, reaches back into history even further than the high priest Aaron and says Jesus is a different kind of priest and is more like Melchizedek than Aaron. And, and so Melchizedek is a mysterious character in the Bible who's only mentioned basically three times in Genesis chapter 14 in three verses and then in Psalms 110 and then here in Hebrews 5. That's it. That's all we know about this Melchizedek. I hope to meet him someday in, in the kingdom to come. But the story here from, from Genesis, to just shorten it up a little bit, is that Abraham goes to war and comes back to Salem, which is in a sense becomes Jerusalem at one point. And he meets the king of Salem, who is also the priest. It's important to note, this, this king of Salem is also a priest. And we don't know where he came from, but we do know he was chosen by God. And this is the precedence the writer of Hebrews draws from for Jesus. Jesus may not come into the bloodline of Aaron, but Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek who is just chosen by God because God can do whatever God wants to do. Obviously, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. But Jesus is a greater Melchizedek, appointed by, by God, king and high priest. Now, this is important because the implications of this are big. The Jewish people in those days, they knew that a king and a Messiah would come to save the people. They believed that, but they also believed there would be a suffering servant that acted like a priest who would come but they saw him as two different people. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling the Jewish people, it's actually one person. The priest, the sacrificial servant, the perfect spotless lamb who will lay down his life as the final sacrifice is also king. And for us, we're like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, yeah, okay. For them, it was like, like the same person. Jesus rules as king of kings, also as the mediator between God and man. And this brings up the second part of the job description. Jesus, our high priest, was selected from among the people. I've heard it said that the, that the son of God became man so men and women could become the sons and daughters of God. It's beautiful. And then the third one is Jesus, our high priest, represents us in the matters related to God Jesus is an advocate on behalf of us. Um, and Jesus literally has, he's an advocate that has walked in our shoes as humans, has lived in our environments. Yeah, not in 21st century America, but humans are humans are humans. Anywhere you go in the world, you will discover that pain is pain. 
that joy is joy. If you see kids playing in South America or in Africa or in India or in the United States, kids, they, they play the same. If you put a ball in the middle of a circle, the kids will play. And, 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 and so humans are humans are humans. And Jesus went through all sorts of joys and pains and temptations in his life. And he is an advocate that came from us and he represents us and matters. He's an advocate for us in matters related to God. And I do wanna read real quick here because it's so beautiful again, verses seven through nine. And it says this, during the days of Jesus, life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. This passage here takes us back to the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus died. Remember when Jesus was crying and there was even like like blood that was a part of like, you just picture blood vessels popping and like the intensity of Jesus's emotion in that moment, um, looking towards his death and the ancient Jewish sacrificial system was beginning to culminate in the person of Jesus. All the blood of all the animals over centuries, all that pain was a shadow pointing to the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. God in the flesh who would absorb the consequences of sin once and for all on our behalf is both king and our high priest. But Jesus is also the perfect sacrifice not, not, he didn't sin. He laid down his life, a sinless, that's why we call him the lamb of God. That's when we use that term, it's representing the perfect lamb that was sacrificed for us in the ancient Jewish sacrificial system. But Jesus, metaphorically, drawing off that as a spotless lamb who laid down his life for us, showing us eternally that sin leads to death. Forgiveness is costly and redemption is possible. Two more quickly. Jesus, our high priest. In this one, I, I've, had a, I've had you, church family, on my heart when I, when I was reading these words. I just had a sense there are some people that really need to hear this about our Lord and Savior. Jesus deals gently with those who are ignorant or those who, who are going astray. Jesus, Jesus deals gently. We were praying before a church, a group of us, and a bunch of us pray over in the window room over there uh, and off of our gathering place. You're welcome to come pray with us before if you ever want to. But my friend Ben was praying and he mentioned something in his prayer from Romans chapter two, verse four, that I wanna highlight today. Um, It's amazing how during a prayer time, how much of that I find makes its way into our gathering. Uh, there is this thought process in every religion in the world that took place in the Jewish mind in the Old Testament as well and in the days of Jesus and it was this, that repentance leads to God's kindness. That if you repent and you turn from your sins, um, it'll lead to God's kindness towards you. There was a sense in the, in the sacrificial system, this twisting of the heart of it that was, if you fulfill these things, 
then God would be kind towards you. And it was this failure to realize that the whole system was put into place because of God's kindness. To highlight, sin is gonna kill you. But, and paying a price for it, it's costly. But, redemption is possible. And so it says it very clearly in Romans chapter two, verse four, that it is not repentance that leads to God's kindness. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. And this, this is a beautiful part of the gospel that, and we see it in the life of Jesus, the whole life of Jesus, lifting up this adulterous woman from, from her sin in the dirt um, to sa- saving and eating with the oppressor, Zacchaeus, in his home, to welcoming the thief on the cross into paradise after he dies. And more vividly, this idea transports us to the cross of Jesus where Jesus reveals his high priestly compassion, empathy, and gentleness in a way that is so otherworldly. It is what Jesus does on the cross. This is what his compassion looks like. This is how gentle Jesus is. When he has in the forefront of his mind his torturers, the people who have ripped open his back, the people who have put the crown of thorns on him, hammered the nails through his hands, and I I don't know, I, I picture if Jesus could see through all of that, seeing them at the foot of the cross, maybe even standing by puddles of his blood. And what does he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is that gentle? Who is that gentle? that You could torture them like that, show that kind of hate in mocking them like that, to strip away all dignity, put them naked on a cross, and still we see the gentleness of Jesus. I wanna highlight this, because some of you think you've gone too far. Some of you actually think you're outside of the reach of God, the love of God. You think you, you, you have this mindset that has you trapped in shame, where you, 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 you feel like you even need to hide here. Like, can I worship? Am I allowed to worship? Can I take communion? You feel like you need to hide. I don't care how long you've been serving Jesus either. This is something that we all at, at different times sometimes need to face into. Coming back to the core aspect of the gospel. And, and this idea of shame is something that's very personal for me because I have struggled with shame my whole life. And being a, becoming a pastor or deciding or feeling called into this, it didn't help when it comes to shame. It just put another lens on, what are you doing, Dave? What are you, who are you trying to be? That's what's so beautiful about this whole high priest thing. You think high priest from the Old Testament, you think, oh, you know, Jesus is our high priest, perfect, but the high priest in the Old Testament, they needed, they needed sacrifice for their sins too. Because it's not a human set above another human. It's not what this is. This is just us, fellow humanity, needing Jesus desperately. And when we live as if God can't forgive us, when we live in shame, we cheapen Jesus' love and sacrifice and we disregard the cross. We do not need to pay another sacrifice and we do not need another priest who mediates between God and us. Jesus is our high priest 
In fact, there's a priesthood of all believers now. Now let's rewind, and I'm just gonna read this. Um, chapter four, verse 14 through 16, and let me just read it. In light of all of that, listen to these words. It says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but if we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy in our time of need. The last one is that Jesus is our high priest who also became the sacrifice for our sins. And so there was this invitation into God's presence in the Old Testament. It was in the temple behind this big curtain called the Holy of Holies. And the priest needed to do all these sorts of rituals that represented cleansing from washing himself to sacrificing for his sins before he could even go into the presence of God. And I imagine it was sort of a tiptoe into the presence of God. It's like, what's gonna happen here? The invitation has changed. Our invitation into the presence of God now, the one word that just came to mind when reading this is run in. Run in. God's presence is with you. I just picture a little kid just collapsing after a long day of play in his mother or father's arms. Like that kind of like, I am safe in my father's arms. Kind of running into God's presence. You, you beloved one, you and me are invited to come boldly. That's why when Jesus died, there was the veil of the Holy of Holies and the, and the temple of Herod in that day was ripped from top to bottom as a symbol that you don't, you don't have to walk through all these rituals. Jesus is the one and only high priest in the words of Psalms 110, high priest forever. We don't need another one. We can come boldly into the presence of God. And that's what we're gonna do today. That's what we already have been doing today. Like, and the presence doesn't leave you when you leave this room. And so today, we do not, we do not need to live in shame. We are never alone. And in the words of Psalms 110, Jesus is our high priest forever. So I now, I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and uh, we're gonna move towards the table, communion. I wanna explain what that is for a moment. Would you help me with this real quick? Thank you so much. Um, we no longer have, that was so fast. Wow. Um, we no longer have the rituals of animal sacrifice and purification. But did you know that Jesus did give us some rituals to take part in? that Jesus commands two specific rituals that are things we're to take part in as a follower of Jesus, not to earn anything. We don't do these rituals to earn anything. We actually, we actually participate in obedience to Jesus um, out of worship to Jesus because we've already been loved and restored as his kids. And so our response when Jesus commands us is yes. It's just yes, we want, you've set us free. And one of those is baptism. Baptism is where you're dunked in water, literal water. We have a baptism, baptismal or baptism tank in the gathering place, right? You're dunked under water, representing uh, being buried and raised to new life. This ritual joins us, our story, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And listen, church family, it actually is a command. 
this idea of like, I don't know if I'm ready to be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a response of worship to go, I'm in. I want to take part in this physical act, connecting my story to the story of Jesus. Your life already reflects that if you're a follower of Jesus. God has done a work in you, and this is an outward act. And we actually are doing baptism in two weeks. And so we're actually gonna have a new website soon, but you can go to our old one, which is thedoor.org slash baptism, and you can sign up right there if you want to. But the second one is communion. Communion is a reenactment that we're invited to do as followers of Jesus. It reenacts the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. Um, and it's using bread and wine, then we have grape juice today, uh, as, a point, as a pointer to his coming sacrifice and, and death. And we do this to remember that we are connected to a new life force that both deals with the evil in our lives and also shapes us to be people of love and peace to the world around us. Because it is not enough for us to just participate in the death of Jesus, but it is also for us to let it form us in our character, to look more and more like the gentleness, the love and grace of Jesus extended to the world around us. So today, I wanna invite you to stand with me and we are gonna take part in this ancient practice called the Lord's Table. <clears throat> Many of you know how we do it here is we'll have people scattered throughout the room and they'll, they'll hand you a little cracker and they'll speak a blessing to you and you can dip it in the juice and then take part in this symbolic act of what Jesus has done for you. I think I've given it enough context. <laughs> Let's pray, and then you can go ahead and form lines around this room, participate in that, and then let's just worship God together. And remember, when we worship, it is not the band putting on a worship show for us. It is us together looking to and worshiping our Savior and our King, Jesus. So we become the choir together before our Lord. So let's let us up here become invisible as we are just one community of faith before our great king. Jesus, we love you, and we're here at your table. Metaphorically, you've invited us into your home, into your life, and you want us, you wanna be a part of our life. What is that? Thank you for dealing gently with us. So as we receive today, this little cracker is that we bought at the store, this juice we bought at the store, may it be more than just some ritual. But may our souls be pointed to the reality of what you have done and what you still are doing in and through our lives. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.